0: With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about MyLifeInABook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then... She can either type her response or record her voice, and mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to BadlandsFood.com slash Obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Obscura.
1: The following audio may contain graphic descriptions of violence or audio clips of real-life distressing moments. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. For today's show, we cover a lot of ground. figure I can only tell the story of Zach and Addie once, so I better do the story justice. To finish out the year on the main feed, I've chosen to go out with a bang. Get comfortable, because you're about to hear one of the most interesting true crime stories out there along with the intertwining history surrounding the tragedy that created a tangled web of misery and devastation. Now, let's get on with it.
1: Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark.
0: Part 1. Ruin. Our story starts with a storm. 200 miles southeast of the Bahamas, on August 23rd, 2005, a potential catalyst for one of the most engagingly morbid true crime stories of the 21st century, forms. The storm rages. The bands of the storm grow defined. They wrap around the north side of the storm's circulation center and, early in the morning of August 24th, Tropical Storm Katrina begins to churn. The storm makes its way up southern Florida along the Gulf Coast, by now a Category 1 hurricane, killing two. Its brief landfall will weaken the storm back down to a tropical storm, but the reprieve doesn't last long. Returning to the place of its birth, The water, the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, strengthen the storm. With its renewed strength, two days later, on August 26th, Katrina becomes a Category 5 storm. Katrina was one of the historical seven hurricanes of the 2005 season, a hurricane season that became the most active hurricane season in recorded history. Of the seven, five made landfall, while Hurricane Wilma, also a Category 5, holds the crown for the strongest of that season, the trophy for death, devastation, and despair goes to Katrina.
2: It was the warm gulf loop, a current of deep, warm water. Katrina hit that gulf loop and went from 75 to 110 miles per hour in just 24 hours. Bad news Friday afternoon. All of the forecast models shifted Katrina towards southeast Louisiana and south Mississippi. High pressure was building off the east coast of Florida, steering currents around high pressure clockwise. Katrina was forecast to move our way as a Cat 4 hurricane. She was in a perfect environment, had all of the ingredients to become a monster. She was over the warm gulf loop no strong winds aloft. A perfect heat engine with winds blowing in up and out. The entire Gulf of Mexico was now circulating around Katrina. She intensified. Saturday morning she became a Cat 3 hurricane with winds of 115 miles per hour 365 miles southeast of the mouth of the river. The hurricane center said there was a potential Katrina could become a Cat 5. Saturday 10 a.m. The National Hurricane Center issued a hurricane watch for us. That day, Katrina's eyewall began to erode. Another outer eyewall began to form. This is called eyewall replacement. When this happens, a storm normally decreases in strength. She didn't. She doubled in size. The tropical force winds now extended out 140 miles from the center. Saturday, 6 p.m., the new eyewall began to contract. That's like a spinning ballerina putting her hands to the side. She goes faster. Katrina got stronger. She went through another rapid intensification. She went from a Cat 3 to a Cat 5 in less than 12 hours, from 115 to 167 miles per hour. Sunday, 10 o'clock in the morning, landfall forecast, southeast Louisiana or the Mississippi coast. At that time, Paul Trotter, the meteorologist in charge of the National Weather Service in Slidell, said, Katrina could rival the intensity of Camille.
0: Because the Katrina cannibal story is so intertwined with the former part of this namesake's history, I can't do the Zack and Addy story justice without first giving an overview of Katrina. In Katrina, Katrina was a destructive and murderous hurricane that cost Louisiana and Mississippi incalculable pain. It pitched countless souls and left bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds. Shortcuts were taken. Many mistakes were made. The levees and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who built them to protect the citizens and property of Louisiana and Mississippi, both let them down.
1: Devastating damage expected. Hurricane Katrina, a most powerful hurricane with unprecedented strength, rivaling the intensity of Hurricane Camille of 1969. Most of the area will be uninhabitable for weeks, perhaps longer. At least one half of well-constructed homes will have roof and wall failure. All gabled roofs will fail, leaving those homes severely damaged or destroyed. The majority of industrial buildings will become non-functional. Partial to complete wall and roof failure is expected. All wood-framed low-rising apartment buildings will be destroyed. Concrete-blocked low-rise apartments will sustain major damage, including some wall and roof failure. High-rise office and apartment buildings will sway dangerously, a few to the point of total collapse. All windows will blow out. Airborne debris will be widespread, and may include heavy items such as household appliances, and even light vehicles. Sport utility vehicles and light trucks will be moved. The blown debris will create additional destruction. Persons, pets, and livestock exposed to the winds will face certain death if struck. Power outages will last for weeks, as most power poles will be down and transformers destroyed. Water shortages will make human suffering incredible by modern standards. Few crops will remain, livestock left exposed to
0: the winds will be killed. When Katrina plowed over Biloxi, Mississippi, it exposed these flaws, this self-inflicted hubris. Both Gulfport and Biloxi were crushed by pelting rain and driving wind. Aerial photos show the once-proud cities now look like junkyards, wastelands, their history scattered across the land and its beaches like the bones of dead bodies torn from one another by wolves after the battle. When Katrina hit New Orleans, Louisiana, eighty percent of the city flooded. Only a fraction of unbearably painful 911 calls have been released. Your daddy's gonna take care of you, okay, baby? I just want to get out of here. I know, baby, but your daddy's gonna take care of you, okay? I just want to get out of here. <laughs> Sarah, listen to me, okay? listen, okay? Stop crying
2: and listen to me, okay? Your daddy and your mama's going to stay right there with you and they're going to take care of you, okay? They're
0: not going to let anything bad happen to you, okay, Sarah? I can feel them people saying, miss, please, please, miss, please send me somebody. So I'm going to die. The water is steady rising in the attic, ma'am. And I'm going drown in the attic.
2: I'm
0: inside the
2: location with you. I'm in high, I got a handicapped girl,
0: and I got a baby, that's on a pump machine, and we in the van, he's on a ventilator, he's in the van, our water's is coming up.
1: We were they lifeline. lifeline. A lot of them felt if we stayed on that phone to talk to them, we they would survive. Panic, like, people holding their babies, like... I'm holding my baby, trying to save the baby, and on the,
2: roof. the yeah.
1: mother is going down and the baby they're holding the baby
2: over the head. Bubbles, as he was trying yeah. to talk, you know, because he was just going under.
0: Despite being told to evacuate, many residents couldn't afford to relocate. As someone who spent most of his life in Florida, it's just not feasible to evacuate every time the local officials direct such drastic measures from someone so common to the region.
3: New Orleans is called the Big Bowl, a lake to the north, a river to the south, and canals on both sides. Most of the land in between is below sea level. When Katrina breached the levees that held the water back, the bowl was swamped. And in the poorer neighborhoods of that bowl, people who could least afford it have lost the most. Water is still head high, swamping everything in sight. Every rescue boat that goes out comes back heavy with human cargo. One crew had to break open the front of this house to get to a woman who had been trapped in her attic for two days. And they will be at it for days to come. Rescue workers first started plying these waters shortly after the winds of Hurricane Katrina died down on Monday afternoon. They worked all night through the night and into the morning. It's now about one o'clock in the afternoon and they say they've picked up about a thousand people so far. and there could still be hundreds more out here. Remarkably, some people refuse to be rescued. Better off, they feel, on their own front porch than looking for shelter elsewhere. You don't want anybody to pick you up?
0: No, we want them to put the pumps on! Put the pumps on? No, put the pumps on! Put the water out of here. Get the water out! But
3: the pumps aren't coming on. There's no electricity. And even if there was... The levees haven't been repaired yet. Officials are overwhelmed by the scope of this disaster. They can't even pick up dead bodies. There is nowhere to put them.
0: Conservatively, the death toll for Katrina is 1,836. That number is considered outdated, and many consider the toll to be a far larger number. A great many private military contractors filled the city. Their goal is to find as many ways to profit from the post-hurricane disaster as possible. The stranded citizens left to die by their own government were treated as criminals. Watching the video of upper-middle-class white reporters chase around people scavenging for clothes and food is infuriating. And all this time later, it is still hard to listen to the clip I'm about to play. Are you doing it because you need it? or are you? I
1: do, yeah, I mean, you know, we have no means to wash clothes, we have no food, sure. A lot of the people here say they don't feel bad taking this stuff, one, because they need it. But two, they said the police said it was okay and we actually saw the police. They're in aisle three.
2: Hold on to it. How you doing? Hi, what you doing here? I'm doing my job.
1: Taking shoes?
2: No, I'm looking for looters.
1: Looking for looters? And what do you do when you find them? Because I think I them see them. To That's
2: all I can do with them right now, sir.
1: Uh-huh. They're all around us, though.
2: That's what I see, include you. What are you doing? Anything?
1: I haven't taken anything, ma'am. She in
2: the store. Hey.
1: They don't quite look your color. Uh, You know, one of the things that strikes you is, of course, a Walmart is a store that everybody knows. And to walk in it and see it as a free-for-all like that is, uh, well, you can't help but laugh sometimes, even though it is grossly against the
0: law. If those just trying to survive weren't being savagely mocked by news media, they may have also been gunned down by sociopaths who treated the disaster as open season to shoot black people. This is a less talked about fact surrounding post-Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans racial segregation. When a city crumbles, it seems much of societal progress does as well. Many of the homes held by white families pre-hurricane were made of sturdier metal, while a majority of the homes toppled were that of black families. This helped fuel the looting media storm and the localized us versus looters mentality held by white homeowners. It's hard to estimate the lives lost to segregated warfare. As law and order was almost nil during this period. Listen to this next clip as a man throws racial slurs left and right and brags about his body count.
2: Well, you hear gunshots. You see them running down, throw them running down Belleville Street with their rifles and their guns after somebody. Um, I mean, it was like a 24-7 parole by them because there was nobody here at the time. There wasn't any army, police, or anything. One of the men Kathy says patrolled the point. This man, Paul Gleason, her neighbor, who spoke out 12 days after the storm hit. Did
3: you have any problems
1: with looters? Not anymore. Um, not anymore. Um, but you did. No what happened? We shot. Them. How many people did you shoot?
0: 38.
1: 38 people. Did you, what did you do with the bodies? You take them to? Came to the Coast Guard. Oh, we I tried see. to shoot to put them down. We didn't try to shoot and kill. Oh, okay. So did you we kill the number of them? How many did you kill roughly? f***ing
0: matter? Yeah, I hear you. Doesn't matter. They chose to die.
1: They chose right. to commit suicide. They opened up on us, so we fired uh-huh. back. It makes me sick. makes me sick to my stomach to to even, you know, hear that guy talking about um,
0: how many people they shot, killed and, you know, we was just walking through the neighborhood. You know, that was just an opportunity for them to, uh, you know, to do just what they did,
1: you know, for their own personal reasons. The only thing I remember him saying is a bunch of, uh, you know, racial slangs using the N-word and just, you know.
0: You heard that right. The man claims to have shot 38 people. The United States was not his place of birth. And he was subsequently deported back to Ireland. And it wasn't just limited to vigilantes. Deputy Police Superintendent Warren Riley reportedly instructed New Orleans police officers to shoot unarmed looters. Five ex-police officers would be tried and convicted for murder after reaching a plea agreement.
2: In the chaos that followed Hurricane Katrina, police opened fire on a group of residents on Danziger Bridge and then covered up the incident. Two people were killed and four others were injured. One of the police officers fired assault rifles and a shotgun at an unarmed family. He was sentenced to 65 years in jail. Two others were sentenced to 40 years and another to 38 years. The fifth officer, who was not involved in the shooting but helped in the cover-up, was sentenced to six years in prison.
0: But to play fair, many emergency personnel work night and day, saving others and recovering the bodies of the deceased. Tell me what you see. seen. Carnage, uh, destruction, but
1: we have pulled survivors out and that's made it just, anytime you pull one survivor
0: out of this stuff, it's a good day. This has been through quite a bit um, already and there are issues of some deceased about and it has been noted where they are so that um, the personnel
1: that FEMA has hired to come in and collect the deceased so they can have a proper burial and get them back
0: to their loved ones. And I'm sure that's forthcoming. Post-Hurricane Katrina life in the area's most affected was one of survival. 1,800 lives were lost. Survivors were often left with a pile of rubble where their homes once stood. New Orleans alone which we'll be focusing on for the sake of the story, 204,000 homes were severely damaged. More than 800,000 people were displaced. To make matters worse, 7,000 school teachers were fired. Why? Lawmakers went to work dismantling the school system. The tactic used to do so was the shock doctrine. This doctrine is used when citizens are in a place of suffering and are therefore too busy surviving to make their voices heard. Typically, it's the optimal time to put policies in place to deregulate and cut social services. No matter what side of the political spectrum you stand on, this is an underhanded method that spits in the face of democracy. To quote the Washington Post, With the new policies in place, students were no longer assigned to schools via attendance boundaries. Instead, they decided where they wanted to go and entered lotteries for a chance to enroll. This made it easier for schools to weed out who they considered to be undesirables, a.k.a. let's put all the disadvantaged students in less-funded schools and wash our hands of them. Despite this devastation, corruption, and turmoil, it wasn't all bleak. Even with the great evil that lives in the dark recesses of man's heart, We are an enduring creature. You put our backs to the wall, and we'll find a way to settle our way out. Much of the residents of Katrina began to utilize a bartering system in place of money. They also began to work together to clean up and repair when something required immediate attention. I must have been a little older than 16 when I went with a friend and his older brother for contract work. The work was helping to deal with all the fallen trees. My friend and I were of course paid under the table and we were probably paid way too little. But the experience was worth it, and I have fond memories of that trip. Honestly, looking back, any of the work I did with my hands were some fond times, even if the labor was hard in the moment. Zach Bowen and Addie Hall were right in the mix of all of this, so I figure this is as good of a time as any to get started on their histories. Part Two, Zach Bowen, The Failed King. Zach Bowen was born on May 15th, 1978, at 6.50 p.m. in Bakersfield, California. His brother, Jed, was born just three years before he was... Earlier life for Zach was a nomadic one. His parents, Jack and Lori, had little stability. Traveling from place to place, Jack went from job to job. From California to Idaho, to Washington, and then back to California and Santa Maria. By the time the family landed in Santa Maria, Lori had separated from Jack, and Zach entered his teenage years. This was in the early 1990s. Zach was into heavy metal. Was a bit of a troublemaker with his teachers. His mother described him as a love him or hate him student with his teachers. For some, Zach was their favorite. Others, they'd be happy for him to just walk out the door. To help with his class clown image was his near excessively large size, seventeen shoes that were large enough to affect his gait. And at the time, he was beanpole thin and pushing six foot ten in height. In November 1995, Zack became an unlikely candidate for homecoming king. He was surprised to find himself a bit of a dark horse due to his anti-authoritarian nature. He ran on a platform of mandatory two-hour naps, and many students ate it up. Nevertheless, Zack would go on to lose homecoming, and it crushed him. Homecoming may seem like a small thing to most people, but over the years, Zack had grown self-conscious and viewed himself as a failure. This was his chance to prove others his worth, but he lost. After his failed attempt to become homecoming king, Zach decided to take his woes to the open road. He dropped out of high school, and in 1996, he and his mother traveled to Georgia, Florida, finally landing in New Orleans, Louisiana. Despite running from his past, a person can never really escape themselves. And after enrolling in Louisiana Public High School, Zach soon found himself outcast again, and, to himself, a failure. Zach dropped out of high school again, and things got better. His feelings of failure led to a quieter, stoic demeanor that made this near-giant more desirable and acceptable in social situations. In the summer of 2006, Zach began working odd jobs illegally selling liquor on Bourbon Street. That same summer, Zach met and briefly dated a stripper named Lena. The two broke up, and Lena found out that Zach was only 18 years old. Soon after, Lena found out she was pregnant with Zach's baby, so the couple reunited. Zach wrote his mother, Lori, about this new chapter in his life, and an excerpt from the letter read, I could have chose the easy way out and ran from this. Like, I have all my other problems, but... I couldn't do that to her. Zach committed to help raise the child, but Lena was cold towards him. She didn't take him seriously, and viewed him as just a kid trapped in a situation he wanted out of. Zach again found himself in a position where he was part of the game, but not treated as a player. He was with Lena, who was going to be a father, but never felt more alone. When Lena went into labor, and subsequently gave birth to her and Zach's son, Jackson, She didn't bother to call him. To further add to his humiliation, she waited weeks to tell him. Despite Lena's disdain for Zach, he took being a father seriously. She eventually warmed to Zach. Before, Zach spent so much time bartending that Lena never felt he was dedicated to her or the baby. But Zach had now become inseparable from Jackson. So much so that he'd even take Jackson to the bar he tended on January 28, 1998, Zach was arrested for drug paraphernalia. Not long after his arrest, Zach proposed to Lena in a way befitting Zach Bowen. You want health insurance? If we get married, you can have health insurance. The only way to make it more fitting would have been if Lena told Zach no. But she didn't, and the two married on October 10th, 1998, in Jackson Square. Jackson Square is a tourist destination the beautiful one at that, the wedding attracted onlookers. During the ceremony, Zach broke down and cried. Like most of the things in his life, a little happiness carried a large price tag. Just days before the wedding, Lena became pregnant again, it took most of Zach's energy just to maintain the family he had. Another child on the way would surely add more stress that he wasn’t sure he could handle. Zach and Lena spent their honeymoon in Belize. When the newlyweds returned, Zach got straight to work, bartending. There was stress leading up to the day, and, on June 12, 1999, Zach and Lena's daughter, Lily, was born. Zach immediately fell in love with his daughter, yet he knew that he and Lena weren't making enough money to support the family. So, motivated, Zach got his GED, then, two months later, Zach joined the army. In June 2000, Zach attended basic training in Fort Leonard Wood. By October, Zach completed basic and was shipped off to a military base in Gießen, Germany. There, he and other soldiers he was stationed with formed a sort of band. Zach played the drums, and some friends he made along the way played guitar. Zach found the popularity he craved all those years ago in high school. He showed fellow soldiers topless photos from his wife's dancing days, and bragged about sleeping with many women during his bartending days. His friends found that Zach had an undying love for New Orleans. It wasn't uncommon for Zach to declare New Orleans as his town. On January 2001, Zach Bowen was deployed to Kosovo on a peacekeeping mission. Zach served as a gunner for a 4th Platoon Humvee. It was during this deployment, his first, that Zach experienced combat.
3: Lord and left! Give me the fucking can!
0: It was here that Zack contributed to and helped bag mass graves. One day, Zack handed candy to a small Albanian girl. Zack found out later that the child was killed for interacting with him and his fellow soldiers. Zack slowly receded into himself. To his friends, he seemed to lose his luster. It became a frequent sight to see Zack staring off into space. Zack's shifts were increasingly more distressing and lasted anywhere between 10 and 14 hours. To make matters worse, Lena's communications slowed down to a near halt. She stopped writing to Zach, and rarely wanted to make time for phone calls. Zach grew distressed that he wasn't doing right by his children. In a letter to Lena, he wrote, My job is as a gunner. I ride on top of a Humvee with my head and torso sticking out, sitting behind a machine gun, looking for bad guys. And worrying about running over landmines. Jackson barely remembers who I am anymore. I don't know. I guess this will all work itself out in the end. In the summer of 2001, Zach was given medical leave for a surgery related to a foot deformity. When Zach returned home, it wasn't the romantic reunion of a family you see in viral videos and Hollywood movies. Zach and Lena were in some type of fight during the entirety of Zach's leave. These arguments stem from Zach's feelings that Lena wasn't remaining committed to him. The lack of phone calls and letters seemed to have gotten under Zach's skin. And after Zach's leave, he and Lena decided that the two would need to be together to maintain their relationship. They agreed that Lena should bring the kids to Gies in Germany and live life as a military-based wife. Things went well at first. Lena and the kids took long trips to various tourist spots in Germany, and their relationship improved. But then, 9-11 happened, and by early 2003, Zach was shipped off to Kuwait. <music> to give a full overview of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, would we'll take another podcast. Instead, we'll focus on Zach's time there. To give you an idea, a friend who served in the same platoon as Zach had this to say. When we rolled up to an airfield, there was a Toyota truck with five Iraqis burned up inside of it. Zach took a look at them and said, Wow, crispy. He was joking, that was the only way to handle it. It was pretty damn gross. Even after his surgery, Zach experienced a lot of foot pain during his deployment, complicated by having to run around in a battle dress uniform in 120 degree Fahrenheit weather. Despite this, he fought through the 14 to 18 hour days and even earned a driver and mechanic badge. Things were better than his first deployment, but then, back in Giesen, Lena was diagnosed with severe hepatitis C. Zach was again allowed leave. He held Lena while she was racked with fever. The leave only lasted three days before Zach had to leave his sick wife behind. Lena's illness only worsened. Zach was told in Iraq that it was possible his wife could die, but that he wouldn't be allowed to leave his assignment again, causing him to become angry and disillusioned with the military. His wife was in Europe fighting for her life, and he was stuck fighting a war he didn't believe in from the start. On October 26, 2003, a soldier named Rachel and one of the friends Zach made during deployment died from a mortar strike. Zach and Rachel had spent many hours talking about tattoos and music. The death hit Zach hard. Then again, before the end of October, an Iraqi boy Zach befriended named Rashid became a casualty of war when his family's shop was blown up. This killed Rashid and his family. Once again, Zach became increasingly closed in. He fell into a deep depression. He returned to his pre-war stoicism. In November As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation That I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned, and keep your wits about you. 2003, Zack returned to Germany. Lena, now recovered, immediately noticed the difference in Zack. When he wasn't closed off, he seemed openly sad and brooding. It was as if a new Zack had come back from Iraq, and the old Zack was still in the Middle East, working 18-hour shifts. But slowly, little by little as if he were buried deep in the recesses of himself and had to climb out, Zack returned. At least, on the surface. Inwardly, as we'll find out later, who knows what the demons in Zack truly look like. Even with some of the humor returning, physically, Zack was still in pain. His feet were in tatters. His breathing was poor. He suffered increasingly more painful and more frequent headaches. A dry rash seemed to cover his back. Doctors warned him that these symptoms were possible side effects of PTSD. Before long, Zach began to fail physical fitness tests. He began getting reprimanded for his inability to carry out the needed number of push-ups and sit-ups. This furthered Zach's disillusionment with the military. Then, on November 23, 2004, Zach received a General Chapter 13 discharge for unsatisfactory performance. Like all those years before, when he failed to become Homecoming King, Zach felt intense shame for this discharge. Once again, he felt in his heart that he was a failure. And, let's be honest, at the end of a long day, just before you fall asleep, you know what you really think of yourself. It's during these just-before-sleep moments where we often experience an ego death and are confronted by our own self-image Despite the many barriers we set for ourselves, the positive reinforcement of our peers, you can only hide from yourself for so long. When Zach hit the road and drove far away from his high school in California, then landed on the opposite coast in New Orleans, I wondered to myself how much of him was running from what was inside of him. And when he landed in Georgia, Florida, Germany, or Iraq, was his inner monster always desperate to escape? and finally revel in the opportunity to do so in post-Katrina New Orleans? Or was this thing inside of him forged in the sands of the Middle East and tempered by the symptoms of his PTSD? This is a question I often ask myself when researching these cases. How often does a killer know what they are capable of? How many commit the act and land on a Aha! finally feeling? And how many are shocked by the awakening of what waited for them? There since the beginning. Malignant. Infectious. Now let's wrap up the story of Zach and Lena. Zach lied to Lena about his discharge. At first, telling her it was an honorable discharge. Eventually, Zach casually told her the truth, and Lena packed up and left Germany for New Orleans. She left Zach with the kids. By the time Zach and the children arrived back in New Orleans, Lena was seeing someone else. Zach told Lena he forgave her, but Lena explained to Zach that she didn't ask for his forgiveness. and After a few months, Zach was able to move back in with Lena, but only as a friend and as the father of their children. During this time, Zach got back to work bartending. He was hired at a bar called Hogs, and it was there that he met Adrian Addy Hall. Part 3. Addie Hall. The Haunted Nomad. She had a lot of ghosts. Jack, a friend of Zach and Addy. I wear clothes that reflect my personality, and I also wear clothes for fun. Addie Hall Addie Hall was born on January 15, 1976. She grew up in Durham, North Carolina. Where she was born seems to be a bit of a mystery, because in my research, I've yet to come across this information. Addie was sexually abused during her childhood, to the point that at 12 years old, it wasn't uncommon for her to seek treatment for urinary tract infections. Addie attended and then dropped out of Northern Durham High School. She found herself opting for poetry, dancing, and sewing in place of academics. After high school, Addie became a bit of a rambler, traveling across the country, living on the road or whatever couch she could find. Sometimes, standing on the side of the road with signs of begging for food. Many of Addie's friends remember her for being a survivalist. Tough, willing to hustle. Doing whatever it takes to make rent or to eat. In the 1990s, Addie landed back in her hometown of Durham and began teaching dance classes. By the early 2000s, however, Addie felt restless again. She felt the call of the road. So... She packed up what little belongings she owned and hit the road, landing in New Orleans. There, she lived out of her car for a little less than a month before eventually renting an apartment on St. Peter Street. It's there where she moved in with a playwright. The playwright met Addie when she was living out of her car and was shocked to find out how cultured she was. Addie seemed to carry with her a deep knowledge for filmmakers and writers, as well as a strong affection for music. And that seems to be a common theme for people who met and got to know Addie. There was more to her than what was on the surface. She had a free-spiritedness about her that didn't feel false. That you can't capture in an Instagram selfie. It's planted in the soil of who you are and grown by your choices. Something you can't find scrolling through the endless wave of Netflix options. Her nature was something she found on the road. And people felt that presence. That state of being... When they met her, it's this character trait, undefined, hard to see, easy to feel, that made people gravitate towards Addie. And so, after the first night Addie moved in, Dennis, the playwright, made him and Addie a staggering breakfast, complete with orange juice and vodka. Eventually, the two parted ways. Their relationship was never a romantic one, always platonic. Dennis was moving uptown, and Addie was fine to move on. This was not a new experience for Addie, not an unhappy one for her. So, in the spring of 2002, Addie moved to the French Quarter of New Orleans. It was during her time there that Addie met one of her heroes, John Waters, and even got an autograph. Addie's love for John Waters lined up with her dark sense of humor. She was known for cracking jokes that would turn her friends pale. But there were other dark elements to her personality as well. Addie was hardened by the road and kept on her a handgun. If angered enough, Addie wasn't afraid to brandish it. She despised the idea of being played the fool. Addie wasn't afraid to keep rough company either. She was known to party with cocaine dealers and strangers just passing through town. Some of the men Addie dated didn't treat her well. They were often physically and mentally abusive. On one occasion, Addie caught her then-boyfriend... Watching gay pornography confronted with being caught, her boyfriend broke her bones and left her face swollen to the point of being misshapen and covered in bruises. By 2004, Addie's behavior had become erratic and became increasingly common for Addie to engage in bar fights. Not hair-pulling and skin-scratching fights. No, the kind with thrown chairs and broken bottles. She was known to fly off the handle easily and lost several roommates due to this, You had this gun-wielding mouse of a woman who cast a large shadow. Addie could love you one moment and then be screaming in your face in the next. She could be the ray of light in your life or descend on you like nightfall. But those who were closest to Addie felt that was the price of having such a large personality. A friend of Addie's, Margaret Sanchez, had this to say about their relationship. From the first day, she was my best friend, my sister. Anything that a woman could be for another woman, she was that for me. Remember Margaret Sanchez? She'll come up again later. Margaret Sanchez. In Addie lurked a sadness. She'd attempted suicide twice. Maybe her friends saw that pain. The scars that wouldn't heal, and just wanted to hold her close. Brace her at her angriest, and shake away that darkness. But By August 2005, darkness would find Addie. She was seen by her friend Capricio for the first time walking with her new boyfriend, the six-foot-nine Zach Bowen. To Capricio, Zach seemed impossibly large, especially when looming over the relatively small Addie Hall. Her white arms around him pressed as though forever. And now we reach the meeting point of two souls in turmoil, Addie, the firecracker with an uneven fuse. The self-hating Zack and his venomous heart he'd hidden for so long. It's in the following chapters we find out what Zack hides behind his mask. The murky substance, the violent black liquid that flows through his veins. And we ask ourselves, what triggered the conclusion of this love story gone morbid? Was it incompatible behavioral patterns? Or the disaster that created end-of-the-world conditions? Part 4. Powder Cake Despite the bitterness hiding behind his mask, Zach used his grit to smile through the pain. And by doing so, he met the last love of his life. Zach and Addie met as bartenders. They both shared an affection for heavy drinking and crude humor. It wasn't long before they moved in together. Among friends, they were considered a great couple. In fact, it seemed to many that Zach had a cooling effect on Addie. She had fewer outbursts and seemed all around more centered and less volatile. Zack and Addie seemed unshaken when Hurricane Katrina was announced. The night Katrina was projected to hit New Orleans head-on, Lena offered to let them stay with her back in the structurally stronger West Banks apartments. When Zack rejected her offer, Lena received the news poorly. To her, it seemed that Zack was abandoning his children during a time of emergency. Zack and Addie were weren't just not afraid of the state of emergency. They seemed to revel in it, to invite the chaos. Addie had a survivalist mentality, and to Zach, he experienced a lot worse in Iraq. So, the two holed up in their apartment and rode out the storm. And they survived. Together, they faced post emergency Katrina head on. The two crafted supplies from trash they found and due to their bartender lifestyle, the two had an enormous amount of alcohol to work with. They both consumed and traded liquor for more supplies. They weren't greedy. They were happy to help a fellow neighbor out with supplies as well, even cooking meals for the block. The block banded together as well. Trash was gathered in great piles, as were old dingy mattresses, and great bonfires were held that united the survivors at night. During the day... When emergency personnel arrived to maintain order, it wasn't uncommon for Addie to flash the police officers walking by. Even in what looked like a post-apocalypse, you couldn't change Addie. She and Zach weren't shy about public displays of affection. They just didn't care what others thought. When they were with each other, it was like they held the center together, and the rest of the world was just dead. The two were spotted riding bikes together, holding hands. This affection towards each other be highlighted early one morning. When they were sure no one was awake, the two had sex in the street, right in the middle of the road. For a while, the two entered a semi-fugue state. For the first time in their lives, it seemed the couple were able to escape what they had been running from for so long. The emotional turmoil of Addie's sexual abuse and Zach's constant feeling of failure were cut off. They focused on survival and nothing else. but you can only get away from yourself for so long before those shapeless remoras fall back in line and you can't swim away. They spent days clearing the streets and sleeping on the balcony of a friend's apartment. They spent nights drinking, smoking cigarettes, and watching the purple and orange New Orleans sky with legs dangling over the edge, where inky darkness waited below for Zach. It wouldn't be long before the ground rose up to swallow him whole. Eventually, the two ran out of liquor. But by then, the bars opened back up. At one of these bars, Zach and Addie met a man who worked as a bartender named Squirrel. Squirrel told them he could get them whatever drugs they needed, and the couple responded that they were interested in cocaine. Zach and Addie followed Squirrel to the pickup location, where they all agreed. On the way back, they had a brief run-in with the police, but Squirrel intelligently discarded the coke before being questioned. Zack and Addie recovered it as the police walked off. Squirrel privately thought something was off about Zack. First, there was Zack's looks. He was an imposing figure at six foot nine inches with long scraggly hair and a strange gait. Then, there was his behavior. He seemed quiet, but in a way that held secrets. Plus, the man just didn't seem military to him. Squirrel often wondered if Zack had ever actually been in the army or if it was just a fabrication. Things had been going well so far, but there is an incident that may have changed things. You see, Addie's past would catch up to her. The calm that blanketed her during those post-Katrina days would be ripped off, dragging her past forcibly back into center focus. Zack and Addie went looting for supplies at a local grocery store. Zach stayed outside to keep watch. Hell, I figure that seemed like the safer choice, considering the shape of things. So Addie finds herself wandering the aisle of the abandoned grocery store. She had her pick of supplies. But lurking in the shadows is the physical manifestation of her past, dressed in a man suit. And Addie is grabbed. The man attempts to rape Addie, but over the years, she's grown rugged. She manages to fight off her attempted rapist. Despite her attempts to waive the attempted rape off, days later, after an incident involving flies swarming around cooked meat, Addie would break down and cry. Zack's large arms holding her as she shook with pain. That fall, things started returning to normal. Well, as normal as things could get, considering the shape of the city. Slowly, the lights came back on. The water once again ran. The politicians were, of course, quick to make the disaster about them. Zach and Addie got back to work. Zach returned to raising his children, but Lena wasn't happy with Zach. In addition to leaving her during the storm, he had ceased paying any type of child support. So, one day, Lena drove out to Zach and Addie's apartment with a baseball bat in hand, stewing for a fight. She slammed on the door with the baseball bat, but Zach wasn't around. The only person inside was a terrified and confused Addie. When Zach found out, he seemed calm enough. He called Lena and asked to meet in person at a bar. When Lena strode into the South Peter Street bar... She saw Zach crouched over his drink. Before she could sit down, he uttered, "Addy doesn't ever want to see you again." Lena was a little shaken. She responded that Zach needed to pay child support. In a near shout, Zach replied, "I have to pay to see my kids." The two talked over child support a bit more, but got nowhere. Lena offered that Zach meet her new boyfriend, but Zach shouted. I have no desire to meet the man who took my wife. There was anger there. New anger, in Zack's eyes. A darkness hidden between the creases of the surrounding skin. Something Lena felt inside. But despite her better judgment, she pressed on, and eventually came to terms with Zack. In early 2006, Addie started working for a bar called the Spotted Cat. This also reunited her with Squirrel. Zack became a delivery driver for a local grocery store. Zach and Addie began binge drinking and taking whatever drugs they can get their hands on. Starting in the months following the attempted rape, Addie had began her old ways of snapping at a moment's notice. In 2006, these incidents became commonplace, so much so it limited Zach's ability to see his children. Zach was often forced to rent a hotel room to visit them. One night, after a particularly bad outburst from Addie, involving plenty of liquor part of Zach's past returned he decided to run his plan was to take a train to Oregon to visit with his dad however before he could run Addie tried to stop him and he snapped beating her and leaving her with bruises the two split and Zach did take that train he lived four days in Oregon but as always he couldn't escape himself So, instead of being tortured in New Orleans, he was tortured in Oregon. The self-appointed king of failure took his throne and ruled over his misery. Addie sat at home, beaten, bruised, and depressed. She cried and ate ice cream, while killing the hours listening to her favorite albums. Friends began to worry about her, but Addie had hardened over the years. She'd learned to endure the pain, This is a side effect of surviving. You harden. You learn to grit through it. When you live through the pain each day, you learn to bear it. And through this endurance, you can cope. But for Addie, her pain wouldn't cease. Her journey, a tireless one. Part 5 The Katrina Cannibal Zach isn't the nice guy that you think he is. Addie Hall When Zach returned from Oregon in the spring of 2006, he and Addie made up right away. They lay in bed for a few days, working on their relationship. And for a time, they were okay again. They both got back to work, and their life became routine. By July, of course, the couple were once again at odds with each other. Addie's mean streak was back, and who really knows how Zach responded to her outbursts. Their fights had become public attractions. In one case, Addie pulled her gun on Zach in the middle of the street. When police arrived, they searched the apartment, found the handgun, along with drugs and drug paraphernalia. Addie was arrested for aggravated assault with a firearm, first offense, possession of marijuana, possession of drug paraphernalia. Addie, with the help of friends, made bail and immediately met up with Zach. Within a couple months, two had another public fight. The police were called again, and Zach was arrested for possession of marijuana. The constant splits and fighting with Addie left Zach emotionally confused. He needed someone else to provide him with physical and emotional support. It was then that Zach began dating another man and cheating on Addie. Zach did his best to hide the relationship, but Addie eventually caught wind. When Addie found out, she erupted, calling him faggot attacking his sexuality. On one occasion, Addie contacted all of Zach's friends and told them that Zach was gay and that he had AIDS. During this period, Zach worked two jobs. Despite having been split up at the time, Zach and Addie decided to find a new place together. Zach was willing to pull the financial side of things considering he still felt shame over cheating on Addie. Together, they moved into an apartment above Voodoo Spiritual Temple, a store with a focus on traditional West African spiritual and herbal healing practices. After only a short time, Zach and Addie broke up again, with Addie kicking Zach out after he paid two months' rent. This drove Zach to great anger. Anger that couldn't be contained. On October 5th, 2006, the prospect of being homeless, drunk and in the middle of a heated argument, Zach Bowen calmly strangled Addie Hall to death in the bathtub of their apartment. The darkness, the vile pitch and Zach, was finally released, and Zach took advantage of this. He ripped Addie's clothes off, and, in death, Addie Hall was sexually assaulted, again and again, by the man who supposedly had loved her. When he was finished sexually defiling her corpse he passed out on the bed. When Zack returned to work the next morning, he informed co-workers and friends that he and Addie had once again broke up. Capriccio, who had first seen Zack and Addie together way back in August 2005, knew something was wrong with Zack. even contemplated whether Zack had killed Addie. Before returning to his apartment where Addie lay dead, Zack visited a friend named Jack after work. His friend remembers Zach being friendlier than usual. Zach randomly asked if Jack wanted to take a trip out of the States, maybe Asia, but Jack declined. When Zach got home, he began to clean up, starting by dismembering Addie. One by one, he hacked off Addie's feet, hands, and head. After removing the head, he gave Addie a bad haircut to humiliate her in death. He then put her head in the oven and her hands and feet on the boil. Zach began to drink heavily and turned off the oven before heading to bed. While not hacking away at Addie's body, Zach spent much of his time taking drugs and trying to hook up with women at bars. The Sunday after the murder, Zach visited his children and paid $600 child support to Lena. After visiting the children, Zach returned to the apartment and sawed off the rest of Addie's arms and legs and placed them in roasting pans and cooked them in the oven. Zach passed out and woke up seven hours later to the smell of roasting flesh. The next day, Zach went back to work with Addie's body, left in several pots and pans at the apartment. On October 10th, it was eight years since Zach's marriage with Lena. The two were never officially divorced. Zach spent the day binge drinking and then phoned Lena, drunkenly asking to meet her at a bar. Lena declined. The next day, Zach took Capricio out to a strip club. Capriccio couldn't help but notice that Zach was spending an enormous amount of money on shots and strippers. On October 17, 2006, Zach sat down to write his five-page suicide note. He also took time to spray on his walls these messages. Please call my wife. I love her. I'm a total failure. Look in the oven. Please help me stop the pain. When finished, he burned himself, once for every year of his life, 28, with a cigarette, as punishment for his many failures. He walked to the Omni Royal at 621 St. Louis Street, and spent the day drinking. Part of me wonders if he felt relief. Just after 8pm, a surveillance camera spots Zach nervously pacing on the rooftop. Then... At 8:30 p.m., Zach jumps. The ground rose up. The New Orleans police received a call for a 29S suicide. When investigators arrived, they found the note in his pocket. The note started, "This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol to 826 North Rampart." You will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, along with full documentation on both of us and a full signed confession from myself. The keys in my right front pocket are for the gates. Call Leo Watermeyer to let you in. Zach Bowen When the police entered Zach's one-bedroom apartment, the room was freezing. The air, set to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, to prevent the smell from traveling. The floor, covered in trash, cigarette butts, beer cans, and empty bottles of liquor. Epilogue Adrienne Addie Hall was buried in New Orleans-Orleans Parish, Louisiana. She was a poet and a dancer. She was 28. Frank Lynn, a former boyfriend, had this to say of Addie. She was definitely a girl with a lot of personal demons. She had flashes of a very magnetic personality. There were times when you would think, this is the greatest person in the world. And just to put in a word... In my research, Addie seemed like a complex person. She seemed free-spirited and full of joy, but also like a straight razor that you had to handle right. It's clear she had her demons, and perhaps took things too far, but Addie didn't deserve her fate. It's clear from interviews that she was loved by many, and I hope she's found peace. Despite recognizing that he had his own personal demons... I won't bother to mention where Zach Bowen was buried. If I were one of Addy's loved ones, I could never forgive him. So, it would be hypocritical for me to memorialize him. I understand if you disagree with my opinion, considering his many inner and outer afflictions. But I can't do it. Addy and Zach's former apartment is now treated as a tourist destination for ghost enthusiasts. YouTube is filled with tours, and it now carries the label Rampart Street Murder House. It's kind of funny to see this overproduced schlock get play on the Learning Channel as well. Oh well. Oh, and remember when I told you to remember Margaret Sanchez? The friend that had nothing to say but glowing words of Addie? Well, in 2016, she pled guilty to committing manslaughter with her boyfriend, Terry Speaks. Early in the morning, on June 6, 2012, Couple offered to pay dancer Jaren Lockhart to dance for a private party. Once Jaren arrived at the couple's apartment, she was stabbed to death and dismembered. It's strange how much the murder and dismemberment mirror the Addie Hall tragedy. The similarities have drawn the conspiracy crowd to the Zack and Addie case, but none of the theories add up. Margaret was interviewed for a documentary called Zack and Addie that was never released to the general public. Though... You can still find trailers for it on YouTube. And that's the story of Zach and Addie. Listener, why do you believe Zach snapped? Was it the stress of being homeless combined with the excessive use of drugs and alcohol? Was it the PTSD? Was it something inside of Zach that was waiting for the right moment to escape? Was it a life of never-ending failures? Was it all of the above? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Next week, there won't be a main feed show. I'll be spending Christmas with the family, and it's already been a hectic month. There will be a Patreon-exclusive Christmas episode, as well as a new episode of Black Label. If you join now, for the limited price of $3, you'll get to enjoy four bonus episodes by the end of the month. That price point is running out, so grab it while you can. Also, before I go, a huge shout out to the new podcast, Yikes Murder and Stuff. They're a new podcast in town. I'm not usually huge into the chatty or true crime podcasts, if I'm being honest. These ladies are killing it. I'm already hooked. And I think that about wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.